This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5 in verses 31 through 37. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You may now be seated. Well, if you've been with us for some time, you know that we're walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous sermon that's ever been given in the history of human discourse. And I'll be honest, when, uh, when I decided we were going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount, I looked at this week and this passage, and there's just this lump in my throat. <laughs> you know, last week and this week, it kind of tests um, our philosophy of ministry. I was explaining this morning in our Discover OGC class that, that our philosophy is that we just walk through passages of the Bible. It's called, it's called expository preaching because we just expose people to the Bible. And, and the benefit is that we can cover a breadth of topics. Um, the, another benefit is that I don't just camp out on things that I want to talk about all the time. But it's challenged when we come to passages like last week on adultery and this week on divorce, because if it was up to me, I'd skip these passages. <laughs> you know, the last thing I want to do is get up and talk about divorce, and particularly because it's such an emotional thing in our society. All of us at this point are connected to divorce in some way, whether our parents are divorced or siblings are divorced, maybe our kids are divorced, maybe we've been divorced. All of us, if we have lived any amount of time on this earth, we have grieved divorce in some way. A few, uh, a few weeks ago, Angel and I had the opportunity to spend some time with a guy named Ron Deal. He is now the world's foremost expert on resourcing and ministering to blended families. And he said something that really caught me off guard. He said, you know, if you're an American today, and you are in your first marriage and the husband is the primary breadwinner, all right? So if you're in your first marriage and the husband is the primary breadwinner, you make up 8% of the United States of America. And that statistic came out in 1991. No research has been done on this since. So nobody knows exactly what the percentage is now, but most people think that now, if you're in that situation, you represent probably between 2 and 3% of the United States of America. So what do we do with that information? Certainly, we acknowledge that we don't live in 1950 anymore. And, and some of that is really good. Some of that is really bad. But what, what Ron Deal wanted to communicate to us was that 95% of the churches in America, and he didn't just draw that number arbitrarily. He has done a lot of research, and he believes 95% of the churches in the United States of America are woefully behind in their ability to resource and minister to blended families, to marriages as a whole. So, I mean, it starts 
before the blending. I mean, you know, to be able to, to, be able to equip marriages, to be able to, uh, before they start, to be able to equip them as, you know, the marriages are entering into some really difficult seasons, to be able to shepherd people through the loss of a death of, of a spouse. And then certainly, we are woefully behind in our ability to understand and minister to very complex situations where you have two sets of parents, two homes, up to four sets of kids. I mean, you have siblings, birth siblings, you have half siblings, you have step siblings. In some cases, you have up to eight sets of grandparents. Holidays get really difficult with eight sets of grandparents. I had the opportunity this week to, uh, to talk to the crew movement at UCF, which is really fun. My wife and I have been swimming in the crew world for a long time now. And I told them that whenever Angela and I do these marriage conferences around the country, I'm willing to bet somewhere around 10% of the marriages are just at the end of their rope. I mean, we see people who haven't, haven't really even talked in months or years we often see people who haven't slept in the same bed in, in years. Uh, I mean, we, we've probably seen half a dozen couples come to these, these conferences and show us their divorce papers. They're just waiting to the end of the conference to say, yep, we, we can't do it. We're going to sign these papers. And we, we've seen couples where although one person is still willing to work, the other, couple, the other spouse is totally checked out. And we, we find spouses <laughs> literally buying jewelry and cars or whatever. If you could just come to this conference with me. I ran into, uh, I met one woman in Tampa whose husband was not going to have any part of one of these marriage conferences, especially from a, coming from a Christian worldview. And so she decided she was going to trick him. And she told her husband that they were going clubbing. And they walk into the conference. <laughs> And she told me that and I knew exactly who her husband was because he was dressed like he was going clubbing. <laughs> and in my mom's words, he was not a happy camper. <laughs> but what's become clear to me, obviously marriage is hard. But divorce is horribly messy. And as Jesus says in this pas- passage, sometimes though, as hard as it is and as messy it is, sometimes it's necessary. So I want to look at this passage and I want to do three things. I want to talk about how serious marriage is. I want to talk about how serious divorce is. And then I want to talk just to the single people in the room for a moment. So first, I want us to look at the seriousness of marriage. You know, there are a lot of things in our world that we can tinker with. A lot of institutions we can mess around with. We can tinker with schools. We can tinker with businesses. Certainly we can and should tinker with our government. We can tinker with those things because we made them, but that's not the case in marriage. We didn't design marriage. Marriage was designed by God. And we see, if you go back into Genesis 1, God brought together the first two people, Adam and Eve, and he created the first human institution. And you know what he didn't say? He didn't say, well, we have a man and a woman. We've got a president and a vice president. We have our first country. It's not what God said. You know what he also didn't say? We've got a man and a woman. Here's a a pastor and an organist. We've got our first church. No, he brought together a man and a woman and he created the first human institution, marriage. 
And God, he didn't simply communicate this to us through the Bible. We know this. It's embedded in us in some deep level. We have never found a culture anywhere, no matter how ancient or how remote, they didn't have marriage across the board. People have never had access to the Bible. They get marriage, they implement marriage into their lives. And you have people who would say things like, well, marriage, we, we really believe at the end of the day, it's a social construct. It's a social construct. It's a product of largely a male-dominated society. And if that's you here today, I, I want you to hear from me that I do believe that there are parts of our culture that are a product of a male-dominated society. So I want to sympathize with you on that. But on this issue of marriage, I just want to push a little bit because I don't think if it was up to men, this is what we would come up with. Yeah, I I can't imagine a group of men sitting around trying to figure out what marriage is going to be. And somebody says, you know what? I got an idea. How about we each get one woman, only that one for the rest of our life until we die. Brilliant, Bob. That's what we want to do. And I don't, I don't want to be condescending here. I just, I mean, there are lots of things about a male-dominated society that I think we need to work on, but I, I just don't think you can say this is a product of a male-dominated society. And we've tried to experiment with marriage. We're experimenting right now as a culture. We've experimented with polygamy. We've experimented with polyandry. That's one woman, many men. And over and over and over again throughout the millennia, of recorded history, we have always come back to one man and one woman for a lifetime. So why is that? Because at the core of marriage is companionship, a lifelong companionship. Do you remember when when God decided that he was going to give Adam Eve? He said, it's not good that you're alone. I want somebody for you. But then there's this like awkward break and God does something. Do you remember what it is? He has him name the animals. <laughs> and I remember reading that for the first time. I think that's really weird. Here, you need, you need a spouse. Name the animals. And you look, well, I'll read it. Genesis 2, 18 and 19. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So why would God decide to give Adam, Eve, but then say, hold on, hold on, first name all the animals. Why do you think about how this would have gone down? I don't know exactly how it went, but this is how I imagine it. All right, God, that's a rhinoceros. That's a he rhinoceros and a she rhinoceros. Giraffe. He giraffe, she giraffe, lion, male lion, female lion. And obviously at some point he got lazy and it's like frog, dog, hog. (laughs) But I think as every animal passed in front of Adam, he's more deeply realizing everybody's got somebody. Everybody's got a companion, but I don't have anybody. And what God was doing, he decided that Adam needed Eve, but he was going to first show Adam his need before he fulfilled his need. And I love just a few verses later in verse 24. If you, if you look in your Bibles, it's true in the electronic and the paper versions, those ancient paper versions. You see this verse, it, it's indented because it's a poem. It's the first poem in recorded human history. Most people actually think it's a song and Adam bursts forth, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam is bursting forth in song. And I don't think it's only because he has a naked woman in front of him. He's praising God for a companion. He has been given a lifelong soulmate and he's praising God that he has given, given him Eve. But God knows that if we're gonna experience the deepest possible companionship, that needs to happen in the deepest possible environment of commitment. And the deepest commitment happens in an environment of a covenant. I know that's a lot of C's. The companionship happens when there's commitment and commitment happens when there's a covenant. Because when we enter into marriage, we're entering into a covenant, not a contract. There's a big difference between the two. A contract says, you do these things, you fulfill your end of the bargain, and then I'll fulfill mine. If you're good to me, I'll be good to you. As long as you give me what I think I need, we'll stay in this marriage. That's what a contract would dictate. But a covenant says something totally different. A covenant is promising that I'm gonna be faithful to you even when your follow-through is horrible. I'm making a vow based on my commitment, not, on based, not based on your return. And in doing so, when we make this kind of commitment, we take vows. And the reason we have vows is because we anticipate this thing's gonna be hard. <laughs> a vow is a future promise anticipating some sort of hardship. There's a reason that I will never have to vow to sleep in when I think I need it. I never have to vow to treat myself to a good steak every now and then. You vow to do things that are hard. You vow to stay in it, to commit through better or worse, through richer for poorer, through sicknesses and health until death do us part. We vow because we're making a covenant. And when we do that, we not only enter into this deep form of companionship, we understand something about the covenant that God makes with us. Because as we said last week, if you were here, at the end of the day, marriage exists to point us to God, to show us more about God. So how does the idea of a covenant help us to understand how God relates with us in a more significant way? I probably could give you a lot of examples. It's from Genesis to Revelation, but I'm gonna choose Genesis 15 where God makes a covenant with Abram. He tells Abram, who is old and childless at this point, that one day your descendants will be as difficult to number as the stars in the sky. And Abram says, well, how how is that possible, God? (laughs) I can't even imagine, how how do I know you're gonna do this? And God says, because I'm gonna make a covenant with you. And in those days, the way that you made a covenant, you would, you would take a variety of animals, you would chop them in half, and you had a path, and you put, say, the, the, the front half on the left side and the rear quarters, rear half on the right side, and both parties would walk through. And again, this is different than a contract because they're not saying, if you uphold your end, I'm gonna uphold my end. What happens when you walk through that path, you're saying, may the same thing that happened to these animals happen to me if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain. And just before they went through, God caused Abram to go to sleep. And God walked through for both parties. Because he knew that Abram was not going to remain faithful to every aspect of this covenant. He knew that Abram's people, Abraham later, his people, weren't gonna remain faithful to this covenant. So God went through symbolizing, may this happen to my body if you don't fulfill your end of the contract, the covenant. And that's exactly what happened. God's body in the form of Jesus Christ was broken on our behalf because we failed that covenant. 
So when we enter into a covenant of marriage, we're understanding more deeply God's devotion to us, his love to us through his covenant that he made millennia ago. When the early explorers came from Europe and they wanted not just to explore, but like to settle a new colony, they would unload the ship, they would set things up, and as soon as they were set up, do you know the very first thing they would do? They would burn their ships. They would immediately burn the ships because they knew that as long as that escape pod existed, nobody was going to be fully committed. They weren't going to fully give it everything they have as long as that ship is sitting there that could all easily take us all back to the old world. And in the same way, God's saying, this is the way that we need to think when we enter into the covenant of marriage. We need to burn our ships. We need to get it, give it everything that we have. And I think it's probably obvious that when we enter into a covenant of marriage, then that person is the priority relationship. Since we're talking about divorce in just a second, um, I want to acknowledge that there is this really well-documented phenomenon that when kids leave the house, divorce rates spike. And the reason is because for, in, in many cases, decades, the spouse hasn't been the priority relationship, the priority in the relationship. The kids have been the priority in the relationship. And so when all the kids leave home, they look at each other and they don't even know each other. They existed for the kids. So they decide, I guess it's the end of our marriage. A few years ago, my son Collins, he, uh, he came to me and said, Daddy, who's your best friend? I said, Mama. He said, what? <laughs> How can you say that? I said, well... Dude, mama was here before you were and Lord willing, you're gonna leave. You're gonna have your own family. Mama's still gonna be here. And without a single hesitation, he said, that makes sense. <laughs> so it's not just good for your marriage that your spouse is the priority relationship. It's good for your kids too. And, and let me tell you, this is kind of convicting for me right now because I've been in a season where I'm not taking my wife on all these dates and maybe I need to make some changes to make sure that she stays the priority relationship in our, in our marriage. So the design of marriage, it's serious. The design of marriage is lifetime, life-giving companionship in the context of a covenant. So with that, now we come to the passage and we look at the seriousness of divorce. Okay, there is a lot of context that has to be understood to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because he's being taken to task. And, and we're going to look at Matthew 19 where you have the same thing going on from the same people, same context, same discussion. But in Jesus' day, there were two groups of Jews. You had the Shammai who were the more conservative Jews. They would largely look more like us in terms of marriage and divorce. And then you had the Hillel Jews. And these, these were the Pharisees that Jesus was talking to and they were the more, the more liberal Jews. And so they had what, came to be known as an any cause divorce. They had all these causes that would allow them to divorce their wife. Of course, you talk about male dominated society, the effects of it, that the men decided these any cause divorces and the women had no say. And so they, act, I mean, you can, it's still written and you can still find it, but they had, uh, they would say if, if she's not respecting me the way that I need to re be respected, if she's not respecting my parents the way that I think they need to be respected, if she's just quarrelsome in nature, you can leave her. And they would even go so far as to say if she, 
if she doesn't, if she spoils dinner or even burns bread, you can divorce her simply by saying, I divorce you three times. So Jesus is talking to men with a very flippant view of marriage and divorce and and in a straight up abusive posture when it comes to women. And you have to understand this because if you read this, you, you can hear a harsh tone. And I promise you, if Jesus were talking to a wounded, recently divorced woman, this is not how he would be talking to her. But he's talking to men who are straight up abusing women. Deciding when and where they want to be married and when and how they want to be divorced. So we can, I mean, you can see this in Matthew 19, the same Jews, they ask Jesus, Matthew says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And so what they really want to know is, are you Shammai, are you Hillel? And they're thinking, however Jesus answers this question, he's divided right off the bat. So it was a test. All right, so that's one part of the context that has to be understood. He's talking to this men, these men with a very low view of marriage and divorce and women. Second thing that has to be understood. So we have been, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount and we've been seeing that these Pharisees, they want to make the law manageable. You know, they want to look at the Ten Commandments and just check the boxes. And, you know, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I keep my word. I keep my oaths is, is going to come up here. And so Jesus is saying over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, no, you haven't. You have murder in your hearts. You have adultery in your hearts. And so what they're trying to do here is, is to figure out, you know, what oaths do we really need to keep and what oaths are we okay breaking? Because nobody's going to keep all their oaths. And to me, it just sounds like a bunch of kids on the school ground, you know, like if I make a promise, but my fingers are crossed, I don't have to keep that one. But if I have to show that all my fingers and toes, they're, they're not crossed and I make, make a promise, then I really have to keep that one. I was uh, having dinner with somebody last night who was talking about it. as a kid, there was this guy who would, who would swear to gob, B at the end, not a D, swear, swear to gob. And, and if nobody realized there was a B on the end and not a D, then he couldn't be held accountable for anything he promised. And this is the same thing that's going on in Jesus' context. They are taking the third commandment and they're twisting it to say, well, as long, there's certain oaths that we have to keep and certain oaths that we don't. So if, if it's in court, yes, you have to keep it. And as it pertains to the third commandment, if, if you swear by the name of the Lord your God, then you gotta keep that one. So how does all this connect? Can you see? Because in marriage, it, it didn't happen in their, in their court and, and they weren't swearing by the name of the Lord their God. So that's not an oath you really have to keep. All right, so this, this is why, obviously the third commandment is doing something completely different. (laughs) That's why we read the catechism of the third commandment to understand that it's not existing just to tell us what oaths we can keep and what don't. And by the way, let me tell you what Jesus is also not saying. I don't think he's saying that we can't ever make oaths because we have Jesus recording. We've recorded Jesus makes oaths. Paul swears oaths. Well, Jesus's point is at the end of the day is let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. When you say something, follow through in every scenario, especially when you're committing to somebody in marriage. So those are the two things we have to understand contextually that are going on, who he's talking to and what they're doing with the law to be able to appreciate what it is that Jesus is saying. 
And so in Matthew 19, again, same context, these people, they try to, these Pharisees, they try to back up their argument even more. And they ask Jesus, why then, if you're so smart, Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Have you read your Old Testament, Jesus? And, and they're quoting Deuteronomy 24, where there is a law that says, if a woman is found unfaithful during their betrothal time. So think of like our engagement, but something much more significant. It's for a longer period of time. It's legally binding. You actually need to have a certificate of divorce to get out of a betrothal. If she was found in the Old Testament to not, not have been faithful, then you could, you could annul, you could divorce the woman. And this is actually exactly what's happening in the beginning of Matthew when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant and he resolves to divorce her quietly. He, w- he was using Deuteronomy 24 in the way that it was supposed to be used. Not so for the Pharisees. They're just wanting to manipulate it to be able to divorce whoever they want to divorce. And so what does Jesus do? When they come to him and they challenge him with Deuteronomy 24, Jesus responds by reinforcing the main meaning of Deuteronomy 24. And this is the part that sounds harsh, but hopefully it's very clear given the context why Jesus is saying what he's saying with the tone that he's saying it. Jesus said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, the clause in Deuteronomy 24, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So two things have to be crystal clear. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm walking the line of over-communicating here, but he's talking to people with a really flippant understanding of divorce. They're... they're They're divorcing women who have no protection, who have no recourse, and have no due process at all. And then secondly, Jesus is not giving us an exhaustive theology of divorce here. That's not what he's trying to do. You can't develop a whole theology of divorce and remarriage from this passage alone. Because Paul tells us stuff that Jesus didn't tell us, like abandonment is another reason that that we can be divorced. It's It's an acceptable time to have a divorce. Jesus is trying to make a point to men with very dark hearts. That's what he's trying to do. That's why he says in Matthew 19, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus is acknowledging we have a concession here. We can get divorced There are times where there is no other option, but it's the lesser of two evils. It's not something we do flippantly. It wasn't the design from creation. Divorce is horrible. It's horrible for all parties involved. It just gets complex the longer that you've been married. And Jesus doesn't want anybody divorced, but he also doesn't want people abandoned. He doesn't want them adulterated, and I would add a subcategory of abused under this abandonment area. And so in those categories, Jesus is saying, yes, there there is an exception. Paul's saying, yes, there's an exception. There's a place for divorce when it's absolutely necessary, but that's not the way that it should be. Amen. (laughs) And make no mistake, 
that when, when we get divorced, it's like an amputation. And we need to treat it with the seriousness of an amputation. I mean, if you went into the doctor and, and you had a big old cut on your, on your hand and you walked in and he immediately said, yep, hand's got to come off. <laughs> How would you react? I, I feel like we're rushing into this, doctor. I mean, can, can we look at it a little more? I may need to get a second opinion. Have we exhausted every single resource at our disposal before we go to the extreme of amputating a hand? And there is a time you need to amputate a hand, but Jesus is saying we need to be that serious and that cautious when we start talking about a divorce. And when counselors counsel people who are going through or have been through a divorce, they don't relate with them the way they would somebody with a simple amputation. If you ask any trained counselor, they would relate and minister to this person as someone who has just lost a loved one. They would minister to this person as someone who had just experienced a real death. It's that significant. It's so easy to look at our marriages and think, that all's lost. I'm asking couple after couple after couple who come to me and say, you don't understand though. I understand that there are a lot of bad marriages out there, but ours is irredeemable. Not realizing that the irredeemable, the seemingly irredeemable is what Jesus specializes in. I mean, you look at David and Bathsheba. Really? Did you get off to a worse start than they did? I mean, they, they, First, they got together by committing adultery. Then he killed, he murdered Bathsheba's husband. But David repented and God blessed their marriage. They had Solomon, King Solomon, who, from whose line came Jesus Christ himself. It's so easy to think there's no hope for us. But in Jesus Christ, there's always hope. So I do want to say in the strongest possible terms that divorce is serious and divorce is horrible for all parties involved, but there are times that it's necessary. And I also want you to hear me say that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Now, I don't see any reason that, you know, murderers and worse can repent and come to faith and get married and thrive but not divorce people. They're out. That's not what the Bible's teaching. But I do have a big caveat here. There has to be repentance. Deep understanding and repentance of what has gone on in your marriage, of what you've done to contribute to it. And I would go so far as to say if there's been an unbiblical divorce, not one of those three categories, abandonment, adultery, and abuse, there's probably gonna have to be a coming to faith for the first time because it is really hard for a spirit-filled Christian to enter into an unbiblical divorce. Remember, God cares about the heart, not the technicalities here. And I had a friend come to me some years back and he, he was recently divorced and he wanted me to give him a Bible verse to, make him, to, to give him hope that he could be remarried one day. And I said, dude, you're asking the wrong question. <laughs> the question isn't, is there a Bible verse to give you a technicality to get married again? The question is, do you understand what you did to contribute to this horrible divorce that you just went through? Do you understand, have you searched your soul? 
Because it's going to take a lot of soul searching and repentance and a whole lot of time. And after all that's happened, then come to me with the same question. But we're not going to just talk technicalities. Jesus cares about your heart and so do I. And I will tell you that two of the men I admire most at my old church, Grace Bible Church, are men who were married and they got divorced and they were incredibly repentant and fell at Jesus' feet. They are remarried now and some of the the best models of Christians and husbands and fathers that I could present to you. And likely both are gonna be elders at Grace Bible Church before too long. There's grace for everyone. And at Orlando Grace Church, we want to be a church where grace is on display for everyone, regardless of what the situation is, and especially when it comes to to situations, very complex situations where there are deep wounds, and guilt and shame, we want to bring the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ to bear in all of these situations. And you know, it's, I was thinking this week, how you choose your name as a church is a bold thing. You know, if you're really safe, you go first, you know, denomination of this city, that's safe. But when you start adding words like Bible or fellowship or community, I mean, you better deliver on what you're putting in your name there And at Orlando Grace Church, if we ever get to the point where we look at divorced people as some sort of subhuman, second-class citizen who's committed the unpardonable sin, then we might need to consider rechanging our name because we are Orlando Grace Church and Jesus brings grace to every area of our life, including our marriage, including our divorce. There is hope for everyone in the name of Jesus Christ. God loves redeeming people. In the worst of possible situations, he is serious about marriage. He is serious about divorce. And then I just want to finish by talking to you single people, just for a moment. Singleness isn't easy. Tim Keller, he says that singleness under any circumstance has to be seen as a calling or you won't be able to endure it. And we've been touching on Matthew 19 a lot because again, it's the same context, the same people, the same discussion. And in that passage, Jesus has this really kind of odd phrase. He says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man and there are eunuchs who who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So what does that mean? Well, first you have to know what a eunuch is and I think it's important that you do. So I'm gonna tell you to ask your parents on the way to lunch. What what is a eunuch, daddy? I'll probably be having to answer that question myself. But what Jesus is saying is there's some people for a physical reason, they can't be married. There's some people who remain single because of a special calling of God on their lives. And I think it's fair to say that if sin weren't in the world, singleness would not be an issue. And, and I know there's some people who might come back at me, so I want, I want to be really clear about this. If there were no sin in the world, I think marriage would be the norm. If we had marriage in the garden. If we look forward when Jesus comes back, everyone's married. Not to each other. We're all married to our husband, Jesus Christ, which is really weird to think of if you're a guy. I get that, but 
the women have to be called sons of God. We all have to deal with something. (laughs) But on both sides of the sinful planet, there's marriage. So here's the really important question that we need to ask. Is then singleness an inferior condition? And I would absolutely say no. I would actually say you could make a better argument that, that singleness in this fallen world is the superior condition. We know that Paul was single. We, we're, sure, we're pretty sure he was married at some point. Maybe his wife died. Maybe she divorced him because he became a Christian. And Paul became convinced that because of the special call on his life in this fallen world, that for him, singleness was the superior condition. And we see as much when he says, I wish that all were as I am myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. There is so much confusion in our society today, but I think a lot of it, it comes down to this issue of singleness because society sees singleness as this bad thing. Society sees singleness as a second-class citizen. Society sees singleness as subhuman, as this sort of death sentence. And as a result, we begin to modify everything that we need to modify about marriage and sexuality so we don't need to be single. And so you think about all the people that are under attack today, Christians, gender, whatever it is, I don't think there's anybody that's attacked more than single people. But we see singleness over and over in the course of human history being used by God to increase our capacity to do ministry for him. Some of the most influential people in the history of the world were influential because they were single. I mean, we talked about the Apostle Paul, you have Augustine, I mean, going forward, you have C.S. Lewis, you have John Stott. Some of the most influential people in the course of human history were influential because they were freed up. They didn't have a spouse or children to have to deal with. And that was a hard but special and worthy, if not superior, calling on their lives. And we've left out one more person, Jesus Christ. I mean, he was no subclass citizen. This is the the best of all of us, the most human of all of us. Yet he was single the most influential human being ever to walk the history of the earth. And he was single. So singleness can't be the secondary status. Jesus modeled it for all of us. I think it can be the superior condition. And if you are single, maybe you're single for a season. Maybe God does have you to be single for the rest of your life. But what I want you to hear if you are single is that if God has called you to singleness, he will sustain you in your singleness and he will use you in that condition. Marriages are hard. Marriages are messy. Singleness is hard. And all of us, I think, would do well to remember that according to God, we are that unfaithful spouse. Through the course of the Old Testament, you see this metaphor developed over and over again. We're the unfaithful spouse to God. And in Ezekiel 16, God goes so far to say, you're not just an unfaithful spouse, you're a prostitute. And you're not just a prostitute, you're a prostitute who pays her customers. And then so God, when he could handle no more, when Israel had transgressed that far, he hands Israel a decree of divorce. And so at this point, you you might think, well, what was all that covenant talk about God? 
Well, God would have been totally just to stop there, to divorce Israel. But instead, we read in Ezekiel 16. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God came, and he he came to pay the price of a prostitute. He came in the form of Jesus Christ to pay the debt that we owed. He came to lavish us, our bodies and our hearts with righteousness, and he came to remarry us. That's the Christian message. And when we receive the grace of God in our hearts, then in turn, we can love him for the first time. So marriage is serious. It's serious for us, but it's serious because of what we can understand about the love of God, the commitment of God, the covenant that he has initiated and will continue with his people. So our hope at Orlando Grace Church is that we would be serious about marriage, that we would be serious about divorce, that we would be serious about grace, and that we would exalt the status of singleness among us. So that's what I wanna pray for right now that these things would be true at Orlando Grace Church and that we would be a beacon of hope in a very confused and dark world. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you model everything that we're talking about. You pursue us, you love us, you covenant with us and you pursue us through all our transgressions and you make us lovely, you make us marriable. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have bridged that gap, you have healed our hearts, and that there will be a day, according to Revelation 17, that there is a new kingdom fully arrived, a new heaven, a new earth, where the wedding of the lamb and his bride is seen for all to glory in, to experience, and we pray that the way that you have pursued us would do two things. We pray that if we are married, that that it would give us exponentially more patience and love to carry out the covenant that we have vowed to keep. And we pray that if we are single, that we would know that we have a marriage coming that will make any marriage in this world pale by comparison. No one is missing out. I thank you for all the people that endure so many quiet struggles. I pray this morning that you would, by your spirit, give us all grace. Grace to do what each of us is called to do. One gift for one type of person and one for another. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.